On this episode, you'll hear about wellness, fitness, Frenchism, and lifestyle, a Trey fucking chic gangster podcast. Hosted by fitness and wellness French hedonism guru and creator of The Method, The Body, yours truly, Ingrid Delamar Kenny, live from Monte Carlo, Monaco. On this show, you'll find a mix of audio entertainment, including listener and audience questions answered about health, wellness, lifestyle, family, and relationships, and my French holistic tips to be healthy, have your best body, and transform both your body and your mindset into the happiest ever, as well as living la belle vie lifestyle like a chic French gangster. I'm Ingrid Delamar Kenny. I'm the CEO and founder of The Method. She's also my wife and she's the smartest woman I've ever met. First of all, she's my mom and she's really cool. She's all that and she's a superhero. Never mind CEO, she's gangster. This is the Pardon My French podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Pardon My French. I am Ingrid Delamar Kenny and I am your host from Monaco. This is a very, very historical time and I am not co talking about COVID-19. Although William, my guest today, and I thought that COVID-19 definitely contributed to giving momentum to Black Lives Matter. George Flo George Floyd was murdered. Um, he wasn't the first. I hope he will be one of the last. And that happened during COVID-19, which had people paying attention for lack of being occupied with their own lives. Um, and I want to say, thank goodness for that. It was time that we woke up and we went into an uproar. Now, William and I don't go at all into speaking about the riots. He is, as you will hear it, brilliant, well-spoken. He's a gentleman. He is soft-spoken. He is the kindest human I've ever been friends with. And he's also an an optimist, which I love. And he said it a few times during the interview. He is truly an optimist. And I think that is wonderful. And we were able to see a lot of good in what's happening right now, um, regardless of the destruction of property. You know, things are really scary out there. And William and I are not talking about that during this podcast. That wasn't our focus. We don't go into politics. Um, I left the United States nine years ago. I don't feel entitled to speak about politics in the United States because I've left the United States, even though it's my country and my children's country. Um, but we do go into the human side of racism and white privilege. And you will hear in this young man's voice so little bitterness. And yet, he will have you shiver. 
there are a few things things he said and even though our friendship is not a new friendship and our friendships lasted it's not a friendship that's being reborn or revived or forgotten and then remembered our friendship has always been there and i've watched his life evolve i've watched him succeed professionally and never fail but being disappointed um and you will hear more about that in the you know in in the interview william is one of the most talented people that I've ever met in the fashion industry. And I worked with some of the best. As you know, I've worked with Patricia Field, who was the, you know, customs designer for Sex and the City. And I've worked with a few other titans in the fashion industry. William is so extremely talented Fashion is his craft and he has gone places that other designers that are today head designers in world-known fashion houses have gone before and he has not gone where people that were less qualified, less talented than him have managed to get to and that's where the unfairness comes And it is definitely not our opinion that it was based on his race. It is a certainty. And the way that he breaks it down for us during this interview shows us that there's no ifs or buts about that. And if you have any doubt, I can tell you, not even God is his witness. I'm his witness. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I have been in business with William and we have been passed on because he's black and actually the people that passed on this incredible incredible business project that we had been um retained for um they wanted to take William's work which is incredible his drawings are just genius his taste is impeccable And they wanted to take my leadership and get rid of William behind his back. And that is one of the jobs that I have to say I walked away from without not even a regret. And today, more than ever, do I know that this was the right thing to do. It was not even a speck of wonder in my heart or in my head whether I should take this job with letting William being passed on. Long story short, you're going to hear my wonderful friend, one of the best heart I have ever, ever had in my life. Um, From DC originally, educated, classy, like I said, well-spoken, well-traveled. Today, William is married to is cute husband, Cesar, who's Mexican, who's a minority. He will explain the dynamic of how a minority does not get the wrath of racism and discrimination as much as a black person. And Cesar would agree. I think that this dynamic is also a great glimpse into 
so many questions from minorities saying, what, what do you mean Black Lives Matter? How about other minorities? How about other people of color? Well, this is addressed. And like I've been saying on my Instagram, if you follow me, I've been saying, sure, there's all types of racial discrimination, but the only ones who get killed for it, who risk their lives behind the wheel or reaching for their wallet in their jackets are black people. An Asian person or a Mexican person or any type of other races that would go and get pulled over and would reach for their wallet in their jacket are less likely to get shot at because of suspicions of carrying a weapon than a black person. Um, But that's not the whole narrative of this interview, which I love, because the narrative is rather about the fashion industry behind the scenes and very, very much the whole corporate aspect and the whole hiring aspect um, from the agencies and headhunters in the fashion industry to, you know, whether a black designer's handwriting is not the right fit for a company, for a fashion company. Um, William could have been, I believe, the Tom Ford of Gucci. He has such incredible flair. And I just know that I've watched him get passed on. Meaning I've watched him not getting the jobs that people less qualified than him got simply based on race. Um, and he starts the interview saying that he only feels safe at home, which to me is unacceptable. And none of us as Americans should accept to hear something like that. Me as a mother of a son, especially, I don't accept that. I would never accept that my son lives in the America where I birthed him and would only feel safe between the four walls of his house. We can't accept that. We can't let that happen. By the same token, we can't let black men and women get the education and we can't let them do the best and sometimes and very often do better than non-people of color and not get the same outcome as someone with the same level of education, same talent, just different skin color. We shouldn't accept it. We're not accepting it. Black Lives Matter is chic and it's going to be chic forever. And I hope that if you didn't think so before listening to this podcast, you will after you hear William George Taswell the third, my dear friend and one of the most wonderful human beings you will ever have the honor of knowing, meeting, or listening to. Um, I think it takes a lot of courage to agree to come on his friend's podcast, which is usually a podcast about 
fucking chic French lifestyle and health and fitness. Um, and I think it takes guts to know that he's probably going to have an audience of a lot of people that are privileged, uh, with white privilege. And to pour his heart out with so much kindness, I have to tell you, none of what you will hear today is bitter. None of it is aggressive. None of it is presumptuous. It is from the heart. It is deep-rooted into his American roots. It is deep-rooted into his family roots coming from slavery. Slaves that have literally made America what it is today. And at the end of the day, questioning whether he does have a country or not. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, I think there's nothing else to say than to welcome my wonderful friend, William Taswell. Hi, William. Hi, darling. How are you? Good. It's good to hear your voice. You too. So long, so needed, and so the right time to say hi. The right time. Not like we don't say hi all the time, but... Yeah, hi in this we say hi all the time, but I said this to you before. I feel like we used to spend so much time on the phone before social media became the mean of communication that I'm kind of like happy to be doing the podcast and hear your Me voice. Me too. I feel exactly the same way. So I'm going to ask you one question that I think everybody should ask their real friends they're real black friends at this time how are you doing right now that is a very loaded question um yeah it's not even a how i'm feeling right now it's that the world is getting to see how we feel every day black people in general but especially black men um with it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status It doesn't matter where you are, who you're with. It's just a very heavy burden every day. That's one that you've carried forever, as long as I know you. From the moment I walk out of my door to the moment I walk back home into my door. Home is truly the only place I feel safe. Um, But, you know, I'm an optimistic person, so I try to feel the best I can always. But, yeah, I mean... You know, it's back and forth from one end of the spectrum to the other every single day. Now, I know you're not lying because you and I have been friends for over 12 years. And ever since I know you, the struggle's been real in my head. So I know the struggle has been real for you ever since you, you, you were brought onto this world. But for me, it's been real ever since I know you. I think you're the one of my Black friends that's made me the most aware of, you know, white privilege, racism, discrimination, just because of being in the same industry. And we're going to give a little bit of background to our story. But it was, I mean, as much as you called me about your dates and, you know, your, your love life, I think you called me more in the middle of the night about, being victimized by racial profiling and discrimination than your love life which well yeah because that was always my love life was always pretty 
consistent and long range. So <laughs> there was less yeah, conversations I have an to have about because that. I had boyfriends, <laughs> not just dates, remember? So, but, yes. so yeah, definitely yeah. The, the issues of discrimination and racism would definitely heavily outweigh conversations that we had about my personal life. It's just, you know, when this whole thing happened, I mean, you and I always talk. I always send you a little heart on your pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're very, you've always been outspoken about whether you had issues with your mom or whether, right. you know, they were, you were profiled racially or you've always, even on social media, even on Facebook when it started. And so well, yeah, you mean, always caught my attention rem- with, you know, with all and of that. And you have to remember that you're one of the few people that knew my challenges with mental health, um, for the longest yeah. number of years until I did share it publicly that I, um, I battled with uh, clinical depression and, you know, my issues yeah. with my mom. That's how, that's how yeah. intimate our friendship is. I've always, we've always had a closeness and a safe space where I think each of us shared things that were... Yes, you've, you've been with me through the toughest times in my life. Um, and you know, the one thing that always weighted down heavily on me is the fact that you would be crying on my shoulder about being discriminated against or, you know, being a victim of racism to falling victim to my actual race, which as your close friend made it really, really hard. Now, the thing is, when we became friends, we became fast friends really, really quickly. And you opened my eyes. I was young and you opened my uh, my eyes really quickly on your struggle because we were in the same industry. So before we go into the core of things, um, how did we meet? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that it was this, the Mark Jacobs Club Monaco collaboration back in, I think it was like 2008. Maybe wrong about the party exactly because we went through a lot. I'm not Because sure. we went through a lot of them. But I just, I do remember in my possible intoxication, I was going up the stairs, you were coming down the stairs, and... It was your certain intoxication. Okay, well, not possible. I'm, certain. Let's leave that for imagination, please. Thank you. Um... <laughs> But I do, I remember I was going up the stairs, you were coming down the stairs. And I'm sure I said something like, work, bitch, you're fabulous. Oh, can I say that? That's exactly you. Yeah. Yes, yes. You did. You can't say anything. It's explicit. You, you know, I just anything. remember <laughs> yes, saying you did. something like that. I, I remember because you, you, it had to be in one of the warm months because you have a tendency to wear voluminous tops with very short shorts and a sky high heel and I just that's what I it was died because you know I'm I love a high heel and that's how I remember and it. very very blonde yeah, hair. very very blonde, blonde hair, hair and then those skinny yet muscular legs and I think I called you a thoroughbred or something because it rem- your legs reminded me of like a Persian horse which, you know, for most... You always... I've always said you that Always, you've always said I've that. always said that. Yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, how can I not become best friends with a guy that's going to say that shit to me? <laughs> Especially because you are one of the most stylish men that I know 
and that I've known my oh, whole life. So that's another thing. So you can dress women, but you can fucking dress yourself. I think my my best shopping times have been oh, with thank you. you so much. I appreciate so it. we we met in we met when Facebook was starting. We had a lot of people in common because we were both in the industry, and like you said, we've then gone to the same parties together. And you know, aside from this conversation this this very serious conversation we're having today and we were having then you know those phone calls that I keep on remembering and kind of reminiscing about um we had some good times in the fashion industry together as Absolutely. well lots um lots of glamours and you know amazing times in the fashion industry although like you said, backstage is not exactly how it is. All the glitter is definitely not gold backstage in those offices. <laughs> no. And so very quickly, like I said, you've opened my eyes to something that I couldn't really have known. I wasn't in a position of, you know, I, I was still a first assistant on Sex and the City, like customs assistant on, on sex in the city it's like I wasn't in a position to hire anyone or to have assistance at the time you did I didn't yet you were actually ahead of me as far as right, well I've been ahead of design since I was 25 years old which you know under any circumstances in the fashion industry to be head designer at 25 is an achievement that is not often done so which brings us now to 15 years later at why we're having this conversation yeah. because uh, we're going to talk mm-hmm. about some of the people that throughout my career have reported to me and, you know, because of the color of their skin versus mine, our trajectories yeah. have been much different. And we're going to definitely talk about that a little later. So let's be very clear. And I'm going to, how old are you now? I just turned 40. <laughs> it's my 40th birthday. See, the and thing it's is, my five-year wedding that's anniversary. That's exactly it. Ooh, <laughs> so this, happy anniversary. This year was a big year for me, and the coronavirus destroyed it. So <laughs> we've got yeah, a lot of making up, up to up, do. But... Ugh, I know this fuck. This is fucked up. This coronavirus. But what's happening right now might be, you know, a lot of us view it as sad, but I see it as amazing in a way because I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting to be by your oh, side absolutely. for this. I think coronavirus um, conjoined with what's now happened th- via the killing of George Floyd um, has created the perfect scenario to hopefully yeah. get some significant change, not only in this country, but in the world. Because as we're going to discuss later, my issues with discrimination are worldwide, not just the United States. You, that was in Asia, <laughs> but you know what? It is worldwide, um, and it actually uh, inflamed a lot of shit in France as well. I don't know oh, if you've yes, seen. Oh, yes, I've been watching, absolutely. Um, so, you know, like, it's, it's worldwide. So to just kind of give background to all of this, I'm 42 years old, you're 40. I was always two years older than you, but you were ahead of me career-wise when I met you. You were in a better professional position, probably way more experienced than I was. Um, And also you're a designer, so you drew better than I could. You you were amazing to me. I was like floored by your talent. I still am. Um, And before we 
kind of wanted to go partners, I kind of like just watched you and the amazing talent that you have. And I, I thought you would be the designer of like an incredible fashion house. Oh, right I thought now. so too. This, was, <laughs> this is what I thought. And I'm talking professionally because I'm still, you know, in the industry, I've worked with Titans and I think I would know talent when I see it. Professionalism, thoroughness. I mean, you, you have, you know, the experience and the studies under your belt. Um, and definitely, definitely you've gone, I think, through every stage that you're supposed to go through to end up in a strong position in the fashion industry and yet you haven't you kind of like brushed with it you flirted with it but you never got yeah to it's it. like you know while i've still had some great accomplishments and you know it's, i i'm very thankful and grateful for the subsequent positions i've had but you know being the head designer of and we'll get into it later but at one point i was head, yeah we're gonna I was head design at ports international which is the larger Chinese arm of Ports 1961. That was a huge yeah. role for me. And I was only 28 years old. So I know. I remember. You know, I was I was so proud. But I, you know, when you see where the D squared guys ended from the same position, you I thought it was gonna be Exactly. You. you know, you would think it's not to say obviously I didn't go on to do other things that were great, but the expectation from a role so significant like the one at Ports and seeing where others in that role have gone, you would have thought that it would have been more, you know, publicly acclaimed, the roles that I had subsequently. And I've just been, you know, the head of teams, but the head of teams and companies that, you know, make a lot of money, but they're not on the radar of the international fashion industry. And so... I know why, and we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention what I remember from going through it with you, where we knew you didn't get the job because you're black. Like this was the only reason why. We knew this also because we would then watch and follow up who would be hired oh, instead yeah. of you, and usually it would be someone who's not black, who didn't have your experience, who didn't have your qualifications, who didn't have your talent. But I've also seen these companies not hire you and steal your designs because I remember that and you didn't. I reminded you this two days ago. Remember? Yes, absolutely. And then there's the time. And so I want to go over that quickly. But why, how do we know that when you went for these interviews and you created this incredible portfolio specifically for these companies and they were so on point, you were still told that you don't fit, you know, you're not, you're not a fit for the position. Well, because in the fashion industry, while we understand that in professional settings, we will encounter microaggressions when it comes to racism. Mm -hmm. The fashion industry is overtly um, racist and discriminatory. So, you know, I've had experiences. Just remember when we start, my name is William George Taswell III. So without seeing me in person or seeing a picture of me, the expectation is that a white man is going to walk into the room. So... You've always said that to me. You sound... Yeah, it sounds like you're a lord. Yeah, you know, sure. and so when I walk... That is the first 
indication of microaggression because when I can't tell you the number of times I have been that there's a blatant visual reaction of not being the expectation when I first walk into a room. When you first walk in. Um, um, I, yeah, I remember that. I remember you telling me that. And at the time, people didn't ask for pictures on portfolios or resumes. Exactly. Now they um, do. I mean, I've, yeah. been, I've had overt things happen. Um, I've had CEOs and presidents of companies ask me in my interview to confirm that it's my work in my portfolio, questioning my taste level. Oh, wow. You know, just ludicrous things. I've literally been asked, oh, wow, you've got a really high taste level. Um, and, you know, the implication is you've got a really high taste level for a Black person, <laughs> you know, but that's I know. because also I know. You know, the the impression that most people have is that all black people come from a lower socioeconomic status. I'm from the suburbs. <laughs> so, you know, I come from a middle, I know. Your mama I come from a middle to upper middle yep. class family. Um, and that's how I was raised all my life. I grew up with a very diverse background. My young, my oldest friends are black, Indian, Greek, um, Chinese. You know, I've always had a very, very diverse background. And that has been a part of why initially in the fashion industry, it didn't dawn on me the experiences I was having because I think I was so oblivious to racism when I was a kid because, you know, I did, yeah. my mother and I were not very close. So I never got the talk, you know, like when you watch the movie Native Son. Yeah. Um, I mean, not Native yeah, yeah, American Son, sorry. Um, American yeah, son, yeah. How every black mother or parent has the talk with their child. Has to have the talk. I've yeah. never had that, and that's because you know I grew up in a very um, abusive and neglective household where my mother substituted buying me things and giving me money instead of actually parenting. Yeah. So because of that, I was so I oblivious in the industry, and I just I went into an industry worked really, really hard. I've maintained that work ethic. And I didn't really start to notice the discrimination until I started getting the higher level roles. That changed everything. Which is when I met that you. That changed everything. I met you and you were you were being vetted for the job at Pitch. Yes, I was and that's I remember what I, I was being vetted you when we met. And yeah. I remember that. That's when I met you. You were thriving, and we. This is. I think this is why it's so vivid in my mind. And when the whole thing with George, you know, happened, where he got killed, and you know, the Black Lives Matter started to get momentum, you. I kind of like started to look at what you were doing and what you were saying, and I. I sent you a message and I said, I think it's time you speak up, because we started to have this conversation. But I think you were starting to have this conversation yourself 12 years ago. Like it wasn't something, you know, I think it's so vivid in my mind because you were coming to the realization. And what I was saying to Jill the other day when I, I always talk about you, he knows exactly who you are. Um, and the kids always mention you. So he knows you. But I said, you know, very often I would tell William, I think you didn't get the job because you're gay, because people, you know, were not so open about gay people. And you used to argue with me and tell me, 
Ingrid, it's not because I'm, I'm gay. It's right, because, because I'm black. Gay, and remember, we used to have this gay, yeah, argument. Yeah, I remember. Gay works for me. It gay works for black. I know because it's it's any additional thing that can diminish the fear factor that is ingrained into society for black people, especially oh, I didn't even black think of men. That. So you know we. But but William, remember. When when you were like 28, I was 30, and we were talking about this stuff. Being gay, of course, it was super common in the fashion industry. But I lived with a man at the time that was like, why are you always hanging out with gay people? And like this mentality was still, you know, my ex-husband was not hateful of gay people. He knew I had, you know, I had you as my really close friend, but I also had my friend okay. Eric. Um Eric, Eric's turn, who you ended up yeah, I remember Eric, yes. with me. And so who came to my wedding. And so, you know, I remember at the time being very surrounded by people outside of the fashion industry who were like, Ingrid, why are you always hanging out with gay people? Gay, is, gay wasn't so good back then. And I really thought that when you weren't getting the jobs, I really thought that was the problem. It's, I, it's so crazy to me that it came down to being your race rather than, you know, the fact that you're gay. I really thought that was the problem at the time. I didn't think for a second that the color of your skin, when you're looking at models like Naomi Campbell and Iman, they were all thriving in the but fashion that's, industry. And you know, but and that's I, different. I, They're in front of the camera. I know. They can be exoticized. You can't really exoticize the creatives that are behind the curtain. And that's why... That's okay, why so this is where we go. You said to me, and I'm going to cut you off because I don't want to forget. You said that these companies like Carrick, Gucci, Prada, LVMH, they create this diversity initiatives, but they have zero black designers on their team. And I asked you, I said, do we know why? Is it systematic racism towards blacks only? And I want you to answer that question. Like, I don't understand how today, you know, we still have this issue. Why are these initiatives existing and yet none of the, the designers so, are black except from the off-white Well, designers. we're going to talk about that I think too, he's the only that's one. Also, um, that's also, that's a microaggressive um, appointment, which um, we'll okay. talk about that as well. Um, we need to first start with the initiatives themselves. Like, for instance... Take Gucci's initiative. That was an opportunity. What these initiatives have are an opportunity to really include legitimate, established Black fashion, apparel, and retail executives to join them. And for me, it was performative the moment Gucci appointed Ava DuVernay as like the chair of the council. While she is definitely, obviously, a world-renowned director and a Black woman, she knows nothing yeah. about the fashion yeah. industry. Why would she be? It's just, if you're taking something seriously, you're going to find the most qualified person within that industry, if you're really planning on making some substantial change. You've got people in this industry, like June Haynes, who was at one point the executive vice president of retail for Valentino. She's world known in the industry. Everyone knows June Hayes. Why wasn't a person like her yeah. chosen? 
someone that understands the industry, understands what it's like to be a black executive in the industry and has achieved. Is it so they could micromanage? No, it's because they don't have intention of actually doing any real work. It is a performative effort. And it's case in point. What was this? Two years ago, Gucci still has zero black people um, in their creative teams. So it's like all of these things are performative. You don't know what who's being hired and who's not being hired because the fashion industry isn't held accountable. They no one's no one's really distributing true percentages of hiring. Um, of their hiring um, direction. Like, it's just no one knows what's happening unless you're actually working there. And then there's still this mafia mentality of you don't speak about your company outside of the doors of the company. Fashion is still very Mm. secret. Mm. And now, you know, I think lots of corporations and lots of industries are being forced to open the doors because everyone is knocking and they want to know what's going on inside. Now, but you know what scares me about that though? Before you go on, I'm seeing it with the influencers and I'm kind of like ranting about it. And all these influencers that now have companies themselves are saying, we're going to, we're going to be better. We're going to make an effort to hire more diversity and, you know, more people of color. I don't want to see a hypocritical, I've been saying this to you for so many years, but more today than ever. I don't want to see hypocritical, um, initiatives happening like i care why they hire them i care that they're going to go look into their level of education their level of experience of qualifications i don't want them to start hiring black men and women has that are not qualified but just as fronts for the company to we hire you know we have diversity and you know it's like go like it's like some guy now that's gonna go hire a black friend to pose with on Instagram to say he's not racist. It to me, it's exactly the well, same. Well, and then that what you just said makes so much sense, and it actually brings me. And I'll get back to why there, what the mindset and the thought process is of why you don't see black designers in many of the companies that they should do. But touching right. on what you just said about um, hiring. Um, show ponies or someone just to be a poster of We Hire, Um, you mentioned Virgil Abloh. So, you know, as a Black designer and other Black um, fashion design professionals, that for me was one of the most offensive appointments in my entire adult life in the fashion industry because... Holy shit, I thought you were going to say some victory. Okay, I want to hear this. Remember... In the apparel industry, we are classically trained professionals, and people forget that this is an this is an industry of educated, technically skilled designers. When you look at the people that are in the roles of creative director, artistic director of all of these major fashion houses around the world, and even in where the role that Virgil Abloh was is in now. The person that he replaced, Kim Jones, who is now head of menswear at Dior, was mm-hmm. a 19-year veteran in the fashion industry that, like myself and like everyone yeah. else in the industry, worked from entry-level designer up to that executive-level role. So for all of us Black designers that don't get the opportunity to those roles that are classically trained are technically skilled and you know 
I, at 20 years in the industry, can still, I can do everything from sketch to finished retail garment because this is my profession and expertise. Of what a role- yes, you can, right, I've seen it. A, an appointment like Virgil Abloh's was, was to say, as a, it, what that said to me and, a, and many other designers was, it doesn't matter if you have better skills, if you work twice as hard, if you climb that ladder the way as your the same as your white and Asian counterparts, you can't get that role. The only way you're going to get this role is if you have celebrity adjacency and international acclaim. We would rather put someone like Virgil Abloh, who has no expertise in fashion design and apparel yeah. and apparel experience, but he's Kanye. He was Kanye West's best friend and has adjacency yes, to was. the art world and has a following from the urban world internationally and they wanted to capitalize on that but you better believe that Virgil being in a role like that versus Kim Jones being in a role like that he's doing 15 to 20 percent of what Kim Jones or someone like myself would be doing in that role because he simply does not but it he shows doesn't in the have collection. the expertise it shows. he signs off he approves but he's not there standing right next to a pattern maker or a draper and, you know, making corrections if they need to be, you know, when I was at ports, I went down, it was, I will never forget this moment. And this just shows you the difference of when you are tech, a professionally trained fashion designer, I was not getting the right results from certain um, samples when, you know, we're doing our fittings for um, the sample collection that's leading up to the next season. And I was having challenges with the sample room getting it right. So in a moment that I came to understand afterwards that had never happened in the history of that company, the head of design, I went down into the sample room, got behind the sewing machine and did it myself. And the entire sample room gathered around to watch this spectacle. <laughs> You know, and the same thing with the pattern room. If something is wrong, I would go and I would show the pattern maker how to do it. You could do and it. And so that's why. Listen, that's how a good business is supposed to function. This is what I say to my employees in my trade, in what I do. I tell them I can do every single exactly. one of your jobs, every single one of your jobs. And that's the only way that I can tell you how to do it right. And I feel like you're right. And everything you're saying is so I, you know, I opened right. even for me. And I thought, you know, I thought I knew a lot about the issue. And that's why, that's um, why, it's, you know, that's why I'm saying it's, you know, your, what you said earlier about that being counter progressive of just hiring anyone, just yeah. to say you have a black person, you know, that's not to discredit the work and the achievements that Virgil Abloh has made, because I'm very proud of him in general to have a black face at the head of anything but when you ask me as a professional in the fashion industry it is extremely disappointing that a role like that didn't go to someone that has worked their way up the industry for a role like that that typically takes us about 15 right. to 20 I, it, years it to makes get. complete sense um i want to ask you about something else right. that you brought to my attention 
the thing about you not having the right signature for the job, I need you to elaborate on that. That's super eye-opening for anyone that doesn't know much about the, iron, the, about the fashion industry. But even for someone like me who's been in the fashion industry, it was very eye-opening. I didn't even know about this. You need to explain that. So that actually connects to what you were um, speaking of earlier of why you don't see black designers. And so I can answer both of them together. So the thought process behind that has always been that they hire designers for brands that likely have an understanding of the socioeconomic status of their target market. So in theory, if you're looking at the numbers of you know, of socioeconomic status in the US, that would make sense. But since theory can never be idealistic, you can't, just because someone has grown up in a lower socioeconomic, socioeconomic status or, from, or income, that doesn't mean that that person is incapable of understanding higher price of points. Course. Or of course. all price points, especially when you are a creative. You know, when a designer really wants to design for a brand, they're going to become that brand and understand that. Anyways, brand. in fashion, so that's, you that's learn general. about, I remember when you started working for Port and, you know, cut me off if I'm wrong. I remember you being in China and working with them and saying, I don't like the fabrics they're making me work with. I need better fabrics. You were complaining about that a lot. No, that was wasn't, it? that wasn't ports. That was when I was, um, that I remember you venting was, so much about that and, you know, probably Nikki London because ports, that was when I was back in New York. Cause when I was at ports, I mean, we just ha- we had access that's to right. most okay. beautiful things because I wore ports at the time, um, and then at some point they went cheaper. But that's I think that was way after your time. Actually, sorry about that. Well, yeah, and you have to remember what you were wearing yes. was ports nineteen sixty one. I was ports international, so my collection was okay. only sold in so China. So at some point, um, you could buy it online internationally, but. Our in China. Was okay, so I'm sorry because I kind of China and you Hong know Kong. you had so many stories that we dealt with, like except for your love life. It's like I'm yeah, I mean, it's all easy. of it. Oh no, it's um, your love life was boring compared to this. You're right. Right. Um, but I remember you working <laughs> well, for yeah, a company, because I was always in long-term like you said, the socioeconomics in which you grew are not, or you grew up, are not the typical black man's socioeconomic like we we know this and I and I this episode is not about me so I'm not even going to go into it I've written extensively about my experience in prison and watching you know the white privilege over the racism discrimination and how you know they are pretty much given the short end of the stick and put in jail for so much longer simply because of their race and not having the privilege of legal representation the way that I had etc etc but knowing that you're going into fashion the minute you step foot into FIT set, let's say, or even an internship with any, any designer, you start getting a feel for fabrics is what I was saying. So even if you don't come from certain privileged socioeconomic, you will still, as you work in fashion, as you start learning how to sew, as you start fitting things on models, you will know right away, you know, the value of fabric, the value yeah, that's of the things. point. That's the 
Exactly. And that is a part of the growth process from intern to obviously one day hopefully so when they say you don't have the right design. signature um, that would know, mean that you would not know like, um, well, what yeah. your richer per se i'm gonna say it in civilian talk your richer audience your richer consumers would want no explain no, this that's to not, me no that's not exactly what i'm gonna explain what handwriting is so um obviously Taste level for some people is natural. It's innate. It's something that is um, a part of who they who they are. Now, some people learn their taste level as they grow in the industry based on the companies that they've worked with. Um, and for me, taste level was natural. I've always had a very high end taste level. You know, I've I've had the f- fortune of. I've been fortunate enough to shop in yeah. Zach's since I was a teenager. So, you know, I've always seen it um, and it's always been a part of my life. So, but what handprint or handwriting means is the, um, the brand image of, a, of, um, of an apparel collection or a retailer. So a designer builds a body of work or has their own personal direction of who they see themselves as, as a designer creatively. Now, it only really works your personal direction earlier on in your career in your early stages because you don't have a professional background history of work in your portfolio. So it all is represented by either what you've done in school, personal projects that you just do to build up the breadth of your portfolio. So when you, but it's not really as much a big as big of an issue when you're an entry level designer because you're not a decision maker. You're not a person that takes ownership of a category or um, a lot or a line um, it, within the collection. You're assisting the design team or the designer that actually is working on category collection. So. It works a little bit both ways when it's early on, when it comes to black people in the fashion industry, for instance, in my case, you've seen my work, you've, you know, my work history, my experience, the companies I've worked for, but what I probably have never expressed to you is that, you know, black designers are pushed towards urban companies. You know, I would, when, when we go to recruiters, for instance, you would not believe how many times they've tried earlier in my career to get me to work at Sean or Rockaware or Baby Fat or all of, or, or all of those names where, you know, I have no attachment to those brands. They're fabulous brands for what they do, but how do you, this just shows you the microaggressions that were displayed to black designers and still are because I go into, you've seen, anyone can see my work and what my work looks like. And it's like, when you see a portfolio from a designer with my work, the direction of my work, no. would you say? No, oh, you know where you'd be great? You'd be I've great told you this before, but this is where you'd be great. <laughs> I know your work. I've worn your work. I've seen you work and I've seen you create on demand for certain companies, but still staying true to yourself. You would go, I think, very Tom Ford. Like Tom Ford, he 
It's um, so you. And you know, and I think that's probably because you probably yes. remember that Tom Ford. Yes. Tom Ford's Gucci. But era I is one don't of my remember that. I just know that the way that you draped. And, that you draped a woman body because I've tried on your dresses when you were making those 80 dresses for that company. I've tried, you draped the body the way that Tom Ford did for Gucci red carpets I re- and for Gucci runway. This is your style. You haven't changed from it. I, I just so, posted some of your portfolios pictures the other day and I looked at, you know, the shoulder structure and the waist and the silk all of this is so you it has not changed you are not you have not wavered at all you're very couture you're very eponymous but at the same time you're very colorblind like you're not designing for the white woman you're not designing for the black woman you're simply designing for the exquisite and chic woman and that's how i see it yeah i i always say you know i don't design for a specific customer because they're not my brand i design for whoever the Mm -hmm. customer is of the brand i don't think about their race i don't think about anything except for what are the dynamics of the reason she buys this brand that's how i always design Um, and it's always been one of the few compliments that I do get in my job searches when I am at the times that I'm looking for new roles is my ability to change and adapt um, brand to brand. And But you still sit, stay so true to I've yourself. Always, I recognize your touch in everything you've done. Yeah, and I always, you know, there's always an injection of who yeah. I am personally as a designer. But that's because me personally as a designer, I'm a the woman who I dress personally is exquisitely That's chic what I and just very said. feminine. I know. And <laughs> those are the right, and those are the characteristics that I think I inject always into brands. But unfortunately, there are some brands, like you said, for instance, Tom Ford, that I would be great at you or would. would have been great at. But I would have never been considered because and that of the color of I my need skin. to bring something else. Um, up. And so that, and that leads us to handwriting and handprint where, you know, you're submitting work and obviously the majority of fashion searches are confidential. So you don't know what brand you're applying to initially. So you're just sending your best representation Mm -hmm. of yourself. Obviously as a professionally working designer, your work is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of the companies you've worked for. So a lot of times, you, you know, all designers hear, oh, it's not the right handwriting or not the right handprint. But there's a difference when it's a Black candidate. For Black candidates, we don't get the opportunity to show what we can do for a brand. It's, oh, it's not the right handprint and the search is over. I have specifically known in with friends applying for the same positions where they will have zero background in the creative direction of a brand that they may be applying for. Um, I have an Asian friend who is told that all the time, like he'll apply for things and it's not exactly what he's done before, but he gets the That's opportunity part of my to, next do a question. to show what he would do, what he would do. And so we get projects, and I know you want to talk about yeah. projects because you know I've had we horrible, had one too um, experiences together. with those as well. But right, but 
so you have that and you're like oh I like so I've started calling it not the right fit which mm-hmm. is gonna is the title of the book that I'm writing about my experiences it's a nonfiction fiction about the fashion industry and it's called not the right fit because we hear that so much even for instance with a company like and I'll say it because you know you have to name names you have to I can say things that are true yeah. and that I have proof and that I have proof that, that I know uh, that to back what I'm saying for instance a company called Worthington yeah. uh, Worth not Worthington sorry that's JC Penney's brand uh, it's um, Worth in New York and I'll never forget you know it's a brand that I've always um, admired and loved and thought I would be great at and I mean if you look at my portfolio it looks mm-hmm. like everything they do um, and I'll never forget when the email came back from the creative director who was later terminated a month after and the company was completely revamped and you want you start to wonder why it's like well maybe it's because this woman is turning away talent that would be the best for the company and that's another thing that you see these companies closing and you're like well maybe exactly. if they were more diverse in their hiring practices things would be better because they keep it's like a cesspool of hiring the same designers but for instance with worth you get the email back, not the right fit. But, you know, both my husband and I are looking on your website and literally half your website That's is crazy. in my portfolio. My my yeah. previous work. It's like, if anyone's perfect for it's that you. collection, it would be me. So you you see that, but then you go and you look at some of these high profile appointments, like for instance, Neil Sloan at Escada. He's a wonderfully mm-hmm. talented designer, but not the right fit is a statement used so often in the job search process, but you've got someone like Niall who went from Hunter <laughs> Boots, you know, the Hunter company to being the creative director of Escada. So it's like you look at these representations of um, different appointments that happen on a large scale. And then you look at yourself who technically by industry experience and the roles that you've had in the past, you should be considered for those roles. Now, I don't really care about those, you know, public, I've never wanted to be in the public eye. I've always, I just love the process of garment development from design to retail floor. And I would be totally complacent sitting behind a nameplate like my my dream when I entered the industry was to be head of studio for someone like Tom Ford. I could have a four I could for forty years be in the background while Tom takes his walk <laughs> and bow down the aisle and be happy and complacent with my life because I care about apparel development. I've never cared about fashion design, and I think that people don't understand the difference between that. Fashion design is the mm-hmm. glitz and glamour. Apparel development is the the grunt work that happens in the background. And lead, being the leader of that process has always been the most important thing to me in my career. And it's why I've taken some of the roles. But that a little I have. parenthesis, I Whether, think that you're you know, like badass and fucking fantastic. You'd be doing great also, you know, taking the last bow after a fashion show. But that's, you know. But I know your passion is definitely in the craft. Um, 
I have a question for you. And before I ask that question, I want to shut down the whole things about like all lives matter or the people that say, well, how about other people of color? You are happily married for the past five years. You married Cesar, who's, you know, Latino, is Mexican and who's a minority. However, I was speaking to you before and I said, you know, he's obviously not to be compared to your experience. And you said, well, no, first of all, because most people don't know he's a minority. It doesn't look like one. Um, and then I added, and you did not correct me, so I'm assuming I'm right. When people wrote to me this past two weeks um, in all of my effort to kind of rally by your side, by my Black friend's side, well, how about the other minorities? How about the other people of color? And I explained, I said, someone who's Asian, someone who's Mexican, you know, is going to go get pulled over and get their wallet out of their jacket and they're not going to have a gun pointed at them for fear that they were carrying a gun. That happens mainly to Black people. And you said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So knowing that you're married to a minority, someone who's a minority but not Black, that shows so much that it's not that you're saying we black people have it worse or I don't care about the other minorities. It's not that. I, I really want you to elaborate on that. I think people need to be, you know, educated on that. Well, so what people need to understand is that the reason there is the Black Matters movement is because black yeah. people do have it worse. And to... And what we've done is we've tried to ignore a system of racism that is was essentially created to enslave mm -hmm. Black people. So we fast forward to 2020 and Black Lives Matter is a major movement. There's not one Black person that has ever said Black Lives Matter yeah. and that's all that matters. The implication behind Black Matters is our Black Lives Matter, and you need to understand that. Because we've lived for fun 400 years in a place that has told us in every way possible that we don't matter. So Black, Live matter, Black Lives Matter is a subtext mm -hmm. to all lives matter. We don't need to say that all lives matter exactly. because they do. All human life matters. We understand that. We know that. But when, and I say when we, meaning me, because I've also had those experiences and I've never broke a law, broken a law. I've never been the reason that should be, so I should be a suspect, but I have been accosted by police before. Um, I've been mm -hmm. falsely arrested. I've had things stolen from me by the police. Um, I've been threatened by police in white spaces that they thought I should not be in. Um, we all have those experiences. And now has a time has arisen that we're able to truthfully share those um, experiences and people are listening. But All Lives Matter has basically just become a statement to counter yeah. Black Lives Matter. It's like you're saying, effectively, when someone says that in opposition to Black Lives Matter, you're actually doing what we said we started saying black lives matters you know for when you say all lives matters as a counter method to black lives matter you're again saying exactly. you don't matter 
at least you don't matter to me because I don't, I don't hear you that you're saying. I think that what should be added once in a while for people that I have a hard time, I have a woman who I I sent you the message because I was kind of like having a hard time, you know, letting go of my emotions about it. Each time I posted something in support of Black Lives Matter, she would answer me with white lives matter, all lives matter. She wouldn't even say hi, she wouldn't say anything. And she bombarded me with like seven or eight messages like that until she got me really angry. And I kind of answered back to her, you know, when your neighbor's house is on fire, you fucking bring your bucket full of water and you try to shut it down. You don't tell them, well, how about my house? She didn't get it. Right, you don't say yeah, all, all, other house, all other houses. All other houses matter. So can be on fire. right now, their house are on fire, and we want to shut the fire right. off, and you know, then we'll take care of the renovations on all of the other houses and whatever needs to be dealt with. But as you know, someone who was in the midst of it all, not just ex- exposed to it by our friendship or close friendship, um, but having been, you know, in trapped in the justice system and unfairly somebody wrote to me but I don't understand why do you rally for black lives behind bars when you have been unjustly treated also by the judicial system the thing is I I was given four years in prison I only did one because I was afforded the privilege of you know legal defense and I was able to use due process. I forced my way into using due process. They didn't want to give it to me. I was railroaded. I was put in jail. You know, it took me a long time. But at the end of the day, the Black women behind bars that I, you know, filed some appeals for because I was working in the law library because I have a law degree. We never got even one with the glimpse of maybe you can appeal. Um, none of them were given chances to even, you know, have the right legal representation. Most of them were told that if they didn't plead because of their race, just their race alone, they would already, you know, raise their chances at a higher sentence. So a lot of them, just the fact that they're Black or depending on the neighborhood they come from, and like you said, you know, Blacks, unfortunately, very often belong to a certain neighborhood of socioeconomics that makes this neighborhood not inclined to good rehabilitation when it comes from even the lesser crimes. So they are told, whatever, wherever you come from, the color of your skin, your level of education, and all of it having to do with their the color of their skin, ultimately, you will get the maximum sentence, especially if you go in front of a jury. And then the fear of going in front of a jury, knowing that, you know, America is racist. And so that the people on the jury, maybe out of 12 jurors, you will have at least six or seven that will be racist. These women are not given a chance from day one to even stand up against, you know, the charges against them. And very often... I ended up speaking to these Black women, leaving them behind to sentences they really didn't deserve. And so having said that, when I, you know, spoke about that and got these messages from people saying, well, all lives matter or I'm Asian, how about my life? And I would say, yeah, I understand that, you know, racism exists against Asians. They've certainly felt it so much during COVID-19. You know, they, they got mistreated 
so much because you know of supposedly the virus coming from China but you're not getting killed for it there's you know there's other forms of racism that are atrocious and they're you know they're hurtful and they're traumatizing but you don't get killed over it is well, what I was trying to say well to right so to expand on that I have to say that when especially when other minorities um whether they're Asian or Latino in, or whatever, are saying, well, what about Asian lives? Or That gets a big eye mm-hmm. roll from me. And the reason for that is, going back to what we were saying earlier, for instance, we know the implication of Black Lives Matter is Black Lives yes. Matter too. You know, that's they matter the just as much. So we don't really need to, right, we don't need to really expand much more because I think anyone that isn't racist understands that. And I think that we have to understand that you don't have the responsibility of uh, forcing someone to understand something that they're just not going to care about. Someone, if someone is truly not racist, they don't need to be explained to. Now, when it comes to other minorities saying, well, I like we, you and I have discussed in the past, the flag, the black fight is everyone's mm-hmm. fight. When, you know, I grew up with lots of Asian friends. Some of my um, colleagues, favorite colleagues in the fashion industry are Asian. One of my mentors, Suk Lee Chung, is, um, who was the longtime senior design director at Nordstrom, is one of two people that I get. I run every role, any form of advice. She is one of two people that advises me if I should take a role, if I should leave a role or anything. So I, you know, I've had some great representations of minorities from all cultures and that are, you know, typically caring of all people. Now you have, when you see the struggles and the successes based on the struggles of black people, they've always benefited all Mm -hmm. of the minorities. We have to, it's a shame that when, you have it's more hurtful when another minority says all lives matter all lives matter than when a white person says it especially when you're an american or an african american because when you think about it for instance an asian american and they say that and it's like generally they're either a first generation american or um they may be first they're either first generation or they're the child of first generation and the Civil Rights Act of 1965, which is one of the results of the civil rights right. protests of yeah. Black people and our supporters, yeah. is directly responsible for your right to be in this mm-hmm. country. So to say that Black people don't care about other races or other cultures, there's proof in the pudding and in the history that that is false. And it doesn't need to be defended. And it's why Black people laugh at that, because... We're always the first and to, to stand advocate. Up for Absolutely, I wanna. I and wanna to say something else. Others. Is that you know, when you met me, you only thought of me as a white girl until you got to know my background and my parents, you know, and my family's from North Africa. But before all of that, you just saw me as a white girl in the fashion industry with white privilege, which I have, and I've been able to discuss with you and complain to you about my white privilege as a friend you've never judged me you've never patronized me you've never shown any kind of 
looking down on me or saying I'm racist. This is this is one thing that people don't understand. You well, know why? Why would I? You didn't. You didn't create the system of racism. Why would I want someone? Why would I deny someone's ability to benefit from their privilege? That has never been the argument of black people in general. We just want access to the same. So this is very important. And this is what I wanted you to say. A lot of white people today that are not necessarily racist, but just oblivious to their white privilege, which luckily because of my friendship Mm -hmm. with you and with other wonderful black friends of mine, and then with my, of course, my experience in prison with, you know, unfortunately a majority of black lives behind bars. I knew this, but a lot of white people that are not as educated about this discrimination and white privilege and racism, they will think automatically that, you know, black people look down on white people for that. And that's not the case. Absolutely not. If that, if that were the case, I wouldn't be married exactly to my husband. Why I my brought husband him benefits, exactly why I brought my him My husband benefits from white privilege and he's Mexican. You know, that's... It, it's an interesting dynamic, our marriage, because, you know, being a black man, I'm undesirable or wanted in a country that I belong mm-hmm. to, that I've on my mother's side of my family, they've been here since slavery. You know, my father's family, um, my grandmother is biracial. So there's a difference there or her mother's mm-hmm. biracial. Um, so she's mm-hmm. qu- a quadrant, a quadrant. Okay. Um, so, and they haven't been, they, they were here during slavery, but not from the beginning. My mother's family has been here. Our roots go back to the beginning of the middle passage. So, you know, my history knows nothing. The the history, as far as I know it, knows nothing but this country. So, you know, to be a black man, obviously unwanted in your own country. And then I'm married to an immigrant who is also unwanted in this country. The only difference is there's more vocalization for my Mexican husband because he is an immigrant. This isn't his home. He, at the end of the day, has a, an entire country he could go back to. Where he's be wanted because he's part of what it. People, yeah, of course. It, it's, exactly. it's crazy. But while he's here, my, my because my husband has been here since he's 10 years old, he doesn't have a Mexican accent. You know, Mexican Spanish is his yeah. first language, so of course he's fluent. He's fluent, but when my husband speaks, he sounds like an American. He sounds like he doesn't even sound like he's a Californian. You know, they say um, educated people have the newscaster's yeah. accent yeah. or the mid-Atlantic That's accent. True. You can't tell that my husband Mexican. is Mexican because he has zero accent when he speaks English. So. And then because of his skin color, the way he dresses, the way his, his the way he does his hair, his race is so ambiguous. They think that some people have thought he's Middle Eastern. Some think that he's Southern European or North African. You know, so he gets everything except for Mexican. He has to tell people that he's Mexican. So, and he's very proud to be Mexican. So it's be, not something course. that he hides, but he would be a fool not to benefit from white privilege. And I encourage him to, because who would willfully invite disenfranchisement into their lives? Who would willfully do that? If I 
could if uh, if I could be so light skinned of a black man that I could pass as white, why would I deny that to myself if that were my my existence? It's not. I'm a medium complexion black man. And I'm very proud of that. And I've always been proud of that. I'm from DC. So, yeah. you know, we DC is the most successful black it area is. in this it country. We, you know, and then Atlanta is second. And we, growing up in DC, we always said DC was educated wealth and Atlanta was entertainment wealth. And, you know, to grow up in an area like that, there was so much pride in being Black, and it's probably why I didn't cognizantly experience racism until I was 18 years old. And the my first experience with racism was actually from another Black person um, in a retail store. That's so, so crazy. Um, That's crazy, but it happens a lot, and I'll tell you why. When I walked into FCI Danbury, and I walked into my unit, which is like a big prison cell, of course, as you know, as I keep on saying, the majority of the women are African-American and then minorities are right after them. And then the white people are pretty much the minority there. The black women that approached me and, you know, started to like pat me on the back because they saw that I was about to cry and whatever. The first thing they would say to me is, you don't belong here. And I remember looking at these women. One of them was really old. She was doing time in prison. And she deserved to because she killed a few husbands. But that's besides the point. I looked at them and I'm like, what do you mean I don't belong here? What does that mean? And they're like, well, a girl like you, white girl like you doesn't belong here. What are you doing here? What did you do? And I thought that was insane that they had been predisposed from the beginning to think that way. And that goes back to what I posted on my Instagram a few days ago. I think it was a social experiment by a white teacher with the white kids. Did you see that in the 1960s, I yes, think, yeah. or something like that? And she's yeah. telling them, you Jane know, like the, the brown eyed people are stupider than the blue eyed people. And she's going on like that for a whole day. And so the, the brown eyed people, the brown eyed, brown eyed kids that day performed so poorly on a flashcard test. And then the next day she reversed and said to the blue eyed people, I lied to you yesterday. And it's actually the blue eyed people were stupid and the brown eyed people are smarter. And so that day the blue eyed people performed poorly on the test. And I think that this predisposition, unfortunately on black people has made a lot of them kind of, you know, tear down their, their own self down and kind of not have these high standards in a way. Absolutely. And then the assimilation yeah. to white acceptance. Um, does heavily impact some people of color, especially some black people. And it's unfortunate, but it's a part of the system of white supremacy and racism that we, all people that believe in equality understand that that system needs to be dismantled. And more importantly, we need to understand that at this point, equality isn't enough. No. What what black people are looking for is equity. When you've missed out on 400 years or 350 years of an opportunity to build any form of wealth, there needs to be equity, not equality, because you're catching up 400 years, you know? So- That's brilliant. What I always posit to 
um, friends because as you know, my friend, my friend circle, my past love life has always been a representation of the United oh, Nations. Yeah. So I've been able to have these great conversations, you know, in my love life, you know, I may be dating a black guy, an American black guy, you know, the next minute I'm dating a Norwegian, yeah, you know, know, you never, fortunately, when I was, when we became friends, you know, there wasn't much of that dating because for the you most part, I was with my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, in my single life, you know, I never knew what my next dating encounter was going to be or what country or ethnicity that person was going to be because I don't really care just as long as um, he's a, it's a man. You know, exactly. So, um, but I think that's so a lot of you. I think I you're always... a perfect representation of an African-American. And, you know, for you, you know, this podcast is going to have naysayers. We're not going to convert, you know, people 100 percent absolutely not. but for me and having having a lot of black friends and i do and you know i do and i have some in canada and i have some in the states and i have some in france um i feel like you're the norm you're speaking for the norm of black people and how they feel about white people about you know about other minorities um about about it all i i wouldn't say well, I wouldn't say that I represent all. No, but, but you're the norm, I feel. I think you're definitely right. You're right that there's a misconception yeah. of what Black people think of other cultures, ethnicities, and races. And in my experience, Black people are some of the most open and welcoming people to other people's cultures because we have to be. When you're forced into... Um, a sort of paradigm of despair, you yeah. know, <laughs> um, you're forced to, if you're able, if you're lucky enough to get access to something different, then you take every advantage of it possible. I luckily had those advantages my entire life. Some people don't, and they get them later mm -hmm. in life. One of my best friends um, grew up um, in a very... Uh, not very poor, but a lower income background. And she's now a successful executive and under being two black people and having those two different upbringings and experiences, the conversations that we're able to have about how she, how she perceives things that she's achieved or able to do in adult life versus me and how our upbringings change our outlook on those things. It's an amazing conversation to have. But one of the things that I always say to anyone, but especially my white friends that want to be educated or understand what it's like to be Black in America, I always tell them one thing. Imagine what it's like to be homeless. African-Americans are the one ethnicity in the world that does not really have a home. The United States of America is my home, but it doesn't want me here. Currently, it does not want me here. I am African-American, so that means my ancestry is African, yeah. but I don't have a right to citizenship. In Africa or to live in any country in Africa. Now there's this initiative to bring us home to try and get African-Americans to come back to countries like Ghana and start businesses and get a path to citizenship, which is great. And I, I think that's amazing. And I may even um, take advantage of um, having another passport because I believe, 
you know, I believe that my mother's side of my family, based on how my, I, I've seen so many images of Ghanaian women, and I see my mother in mm -hmm. them. So, um, and I'm sorry, this like this talking about this subject gets me a little. Choked you're getting up me choked up. It's saying, like saying that your you country know, doesn't want you there makes me, you know, like I'm about to cry. And that right. And that's what I think people need to understand, that that is the plight of Black people. That's that's why this fight has never ended. And it's and we're so happy that it's gotten the visibility now. It's sad that it's had to happen yeah. with the loss of this man's life so publicly. It was too, a few and, weeks before, these two guys that haunted the, um, that Ahmad, other guy. What was his name? The Ahmad Aubrey yeah. story. That's you know, a lot obviously in a little bit was, of time. The murder happened two months ago, but we were only able to digest it two weeks prior to George Floyd. And, you know, it's 2020. I shouldn't, as an American, not even just an African-American, as an American, I should not have to constantly look on television, read a newspaper, listen to a news story, a, a, a radio story about someone that looks like me being killed. Why instantly. did you stop driving six because, years ago? I have to cut you off. You need to tell that story. Um, I Because of these stories um, and because of experience. I've experienced um, police officers being more aggressive, especially in my case, because I'm mm -hmm. educated and um, I sound it. So, you know, they in the black community, there's this thing where, you know, people say you sound white if you sound educated, That's which, so nasty. you know, is a horrible, nasty. it's a horrible result. Yes. And it's a horrible result of the system of racism and white supremacy that you've created, that a narrative has been created with the community that if you're educated, or if you speak properly, you sound white because it's become because it's we and such a negative impression of the white race has been left on disparate black communities, and that's the result of it. And so, you know, but I've also experienced on the other side where you know the fact that I am an educated black man that actually makes those interactions worse. Because you know, they're thrown um, off? Because when, they don't know how to deal with you in the end? They're thrown off. They're... Um, it's... You don't... It's, it's when you don't fit the description for them. And since, especially in this country, our police force does not tend to be the most educated True. people... It's an offensive thing for them. You know, it's a representation of, because instantly when a Black person has education, it's a representation that you possibly have more than them. And if someone is racist or if someone has any prejudice as, at all and they're in a position of authority, which is what a system of racism creates, then that person will automatically utilize that power because it's all they feel they have left because in their mind you have everything else it's true it's so true you know um I'm and like i said that's and i was just speaking with my husband the other day that i think it's important for us to also share the kind and the good stories because we need to understand that 
black people don't hate the police. We don't hate white people. I was just describing to my husband, I'm like, you know, I one of my most vivid memories of an interaction with a cop, because I choose to remember that one time that I had a positive interaction hmm. versus the negative ones, because I like to be optimistic in life. Stress is the number one killer oh, yeah. in this country. I talk about that all the and time. And I refuse to live a life of more stress than I need. And I remember when I was about 22, 23 years old, driving back to DC from New York, because I, I would visit DC maybe four to six times a year when I was in my earlier 20s. And I was driving very late at night somewhere in Del- on the New Jersey Turnpike. And I think I was like that small portion, I think where it goes through Delaware, I might be wrong, you know, it's been so many years. Um, I got a flat, a flat tire and to be black at 2 a.m. with a flat tire on a dark highway is the scariest thing anyone would ever want to imagine. The emotions that are going through you in that instance, because in my case, while I may be fixing my flat tire, if I happen to get one of those prejudiced police officers that thinks I'm stealing an abandoned car, my life could have been over. Fortunately for me, a cop, a state police officer did, um, um, came to assist me, pulled over, I didn't think at the time to call 911 and let them know that I was um, on the side of a highway fixing my flat because I didn't think about things like that when I was in my earlier 20s. Um, I, I didn't think be as precautionary as possible. You weren't prepared. Like so, you said, today, I, you know, yeah. I, I, I explained this to you before we got on and I'm cutting you off just so I can give people that don't know my my friend's a beautiful black successful woman she bought her 21 year old a gorgeous convertible mercedes convertible and she was saying to me that she had to give him the talk and this kid mm-hmm. this beautiful child of hers who's 21 so he's like dylan's age so i can relate so much you know she had to give him the talk make sure that you keep your hands on the wheel and you know like answer kindly and she gave him the she gave him the black mother's talk to her son and she said she said it's the scariest thing and she thought that maybe getting him this nice mercedes was the worst thing she could do because police pulls him over two to three times a week thinking he stole it so it's scary and you you Mm -hmm. didn't get that talk you said your mom would rather throw money at you i didn't get that talk and so right and so i didn't really i didn't become cognizant of needing to behave differently in front of with police officers until probably after my mid 20s. So this cop, a state police officer, white, probably middle early middle age, so probably late 30s to mid 40s, and he was the most pleasant person I had ever That's met. Lovely. And he treated me like any other person. You know, it was just, he was an officer doing his job. He sees someone on the side of the road. It's 2 a.m. He wants to make sure you're not in distress. 
um, he never, he ne- he never even asked me for my ID. I said it's lovely, but you I know? shouldn't even so, say it's lovely. It's not lovely. It's kind of normal. It's what it's, it's how it should how be. It should be. <laughs> it's, it's how it I should be. I have to catch be. myself and, you on know, that. Those are the experiences that my my white friends have had, or my yeah. um, minority friends of other cultures. You know, there have been times where you know I'm you know, obviously because of my persona and because of the things I have. I've been so, you know during the stop and frisk era of um, Michael Bloomberg in New York. Do you know how many times I was stopped I know, and frisked I remember. because of how nice you were dressed. Because of all the nice things that I Man, had. You it's had like, some nice you, things back then. I know you still do now, you, but back then oh man did you splurge I think you had more Louis Vuitton bag than I had bags <laughs> well you know it's just like so for instance you know and cops would blatantly like oh wow you have such nice stuff he's like where, where'd you do Where'd steal you get them, it? Yeah. like I mean the you know the racism and the comments that I would get they were blatant and overt um you're talking about your younger and, self so I want to stop you because you did get some questions and I want to make sure that we answer some of them okay yeah. Anna Jam asked because that fits that. right in she said what would you tell your younger self to do differently I think it's an amazing question considering you're talking about yourself when you were younger um I, that question is very easy my, my husband knows the answer to this um when I was 25 I was head of design of a company called Stelle. Mm-hmm. It was my first head of design position. And what I would tell my younger self is that I should not have left that role. I left that role because I was given the opportunity to be a senior level designer for a company in Hong Kong. And the opportunity to live out of the country and work out of the country was so attractive to my young self that I didn't realize how amazing the opportunity um, of being head designer at Stella was um, because I think that that would have additionally altered the trajectory of uh, my career. I'm very happy with the accomplishments and achievements that I've made in the 20 years of my career, but um, the owner of the company, Barbara Baldieri March, and the silent partner, June Haynes, who was the EVP of Valentino, mm-hmm. um, were and still are two of the most fabulous women I've ever met in my life. And they gave me that opportunity because of my work ethic. They, you know, but for me, that was a transition. I was the assistant design director at Chris Cole before that. And the reason they gave me that job is they said they had all of these people with 10 to 20 years experience that had already been head designers. And out of all of the other candidates, I was the only one to come in with a project of what I would do with the brand. And, you know, that's a work ethic that, you know, know. I've had my entire career. As long as as I've known you. You know, I believe in exceeding expectation. I'm in, you know, in my capacity now as head of design, I'm in the office before the president or CEO of the company, and I don't leave until after. Because I've had, when I was an intern at Jill Stewart, I was there before all of the designers, and I left the showroom after You've been that the way ever since I know you. I want to throw something at you, and I don't know, did we sign an NDA on that job that we... You remember? I um, did we for Lloyd Klein, Yeah, no. we didn't. So was I wasn't going to say the name because I couldn't remember if we but this was my first time experiencing racism for myself. Meaning that at that time you and I were on this project, we were actually we were approached for it. And 
as our dynamic was so good, it was going to be incredible. You were going to be the the designer. I was going to be the creative director and all was going well. You excelled in preparing this amazing portfolio. Do you remember this? Right. Well, you brought the what project. Happened was, you actually brought this project. Yeah, because I had actually gone to interview um, with the president of the company. And it turns out what they were really looking for was a partner to help find a license to do a diffusion line. Mm-hmm. And I ended up bringing that to you and your husband at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that got the ball rolling. I mean, I think we got... We got almost to the, to the finish of, line. We were at yeah, the stage Yeah, we got of, to the stage of where... We were at the stage where we were um, doing preliminary designs of how we saw the line going. Right. And I don't even remember the talks just stopped. No, and they, I didn't, remember they didn't you... stop. I... This I think this was one of my first brush with personal where I saw racism where and I wanted to talk about that because I know someone's going to listen to this and say, well, maybe he sucks. And maybe that's why he didn't get to where his Asian assistant got. You know, there's always going to be a naysayer. And I've been in this. So we got to the finish line. We were going to be an incredible team. You got me from my strength in fashion. You're the designer. We were going to revamp this pretty much dead brand, which I think Liz Taylor wore. And that was it, if I recall. Like no one was talking about the brand anymore. And we wanted to turn it into a new Halston, if you remember. And the talks you thought ended, but you know this now because I told you this back then. And the next thing I know is the president of the company, not even Lloyd, because he kind of wanted to stay in the creative direction. Do you remember? It's like it was, but we were like, yeah, but he's old and this and that. We're going back and forth. Yeah, the, it, uh, all, he, he wanted to approve everything. He wanted to approve everything. And then his president approaches me behind your back and says, we'll take you and we'll take the designs, but we won't take William. And I was like, well, William is the whole thing. So... I can't do this without him, so no. And for me, that was the very first time that I got to feel racism in my heart. Like I knew that this is this was it. Like they wanted your designs. They wanted the woman that you brought to be your psychic. They wanted the whole concept, but they didn't want you. At that point, I kind of knew that this was all about, you know, racism. Yeah, I mean, that's nothing new. But I don't think you ever told me that and you probably were shielding me from it. I thought I did. I would imagine that you would have shielded me from it because I thought that the talks just, that it just went nowhere. I, you know, after that phone call, I was like, no. And that was it. Um, And the thing is, you were the one who were leading all of that stuff until it got to the legal point where, you know, finally I was kind of front and center and dealing with, the the whole logistics of it you know what you're right i do actually remember i thought it got i told to the you point where i didn't need to be a part of the yeah. conversations because the rest were all the re- the conversations only needed to include you and your husband yeah. then yeah yeah i do remember and at I that point remember. it was like we'll take his designs because you had you had kind of like put out 
everything on, you know, paper, like all the designs and yeah, our I ideas. I did, at least, I did at least 25 books. I remember. I still have the, I still have the sketches. And they were stunning. They were and I, I mean, you and I worked so hard on this. You worked harder than I did because this was your thing. I was going to be the creative director, which, you know, my expertise is fashion styling, which was great as your psychic. And I remember they wanted me, they wanted your designs, they didn't want you. And I walked away and never heard from them again. And I thought I told you. But it is very possible that I tried to protect you because at the time, you, I mean, you, you are this strong guy. You were going to the gym every day. You're this big, masculine, black gay man. You cried from this fucking discrimination in the business. And I remember it so vividly. Oh, I've, I've had hysterical crying. Oh, yeah many many times over the industry because and it's not just and you know there'll be naysayers that say oh well everyone has rejection yeah rejection is a part of the game in any creative industry it's not about rejection i mean i my entire job is about acceptance and rejection no no no. but this Every, this is blatant so this is where i this, stop you right this you is need, different you have today people that were your first assistant your second assistant who have gone further than you have. And it's not for your lack of talent. It's not that. So there is a discrepancy, a racial discrepancy in the fashion industry, which I didn't really realize until you mentioned it in the past few days when we've had all these talks uh, and decided to do the podcast. Asians are not discriminated against in the fashion industry. And I need to understand that. And I just... Briefly, because if not, this podcast is going to go on for like five hours because you and I can talk for five hours as we have in the past. Um, I want you to kind of give a quick picture of people that have worked under you and where they are today and what is the racial, you know, difference. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about two in general. Um, and they are actually both from Ports when I was head of design at Ports International. Um, I have one person that freelanced for me from, that was freelancing as like a mid, mid-level designer from Italy. And it was a remote um, role for him. He was in Italy, we were in China. Mm-hmm. Um, he has gone on to being senior design director at Carolina Herrera and is now the head of women's wear under Ricardo Tisci at Burberry. Um, and, you know, and then I, the, and the, you know, this is now, I was recruited for senior designer under, um, uh, gosh, I forget the designer that was there before, at Burberry before Christopher Bailey, but the design, the creative director that was there before Christopher Bailey, I was recruited by one of the New York recruitment agencies to be the senior women's wear designer under him mm-hmm. 12 years ago. So that just gives you um, a narrative and a timeline. 12 years ago, I was qualified for the kind of role that a person that was reporting to me on my team 10 years ago has that role now because of race you know i'll leave it to your imagination yeah what it's because of because you know 
I don't think that I need to discuss my talent and no. whether it's good or not. I think the proof is in the pudding that people have paid me a lot of money to to be head of design um, for their companies over the years. So I think my work speaks for itself. But the trajectory is different. I have assistants that have had similar trajectories. That's what to I'm mine. talking about. And you look at where they are. I have another one that was fresh out of design school, um, an Asian um, assistant. And she now has her own eponymous label that is one of the, is one of the up and coming most internationally re- recognized design, um, brands. And it's based in China though. And so you were asking why Asians don't yeah. really have the discriminatory issues in the fashion industry. Well, that's because Asians represent a large market segment of wealth. It's true. It's absolutely true. There's an entire continent. That is very highly consuming of luxury. Yeah, of course. Right. That is associated with wealth. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about why Black people have face so many challenges in the contemporary to luxury markets and they're always pushed towards the lower priced brands working in this industry is because they're associate we're associated with a lower socioeconomic um background whereas asians are associated with a wealthier one and what we need to break down and dismantle is understanding that Socioeconomic status does not determine how good of a designer you are, how well fit for a brand you are. Some of the most talented designers in the world are p- people that came from poor backgrounds. That is so absolutely true. But we're true. given the opportunity. That's you know, true. like not all of the white designers that are at the heads of some of the most luxurious companies in the world grew up with a silver spoon or a platinum spoon. Some of them grew up without a spoon at all, it's you know, true. so, but they're afforded the access to that part of the industry because of the color of their skin. Okay. In one sentence, we're going to answer, start with Lemon. She asked you a very good question. Try to find us a solution in one sentence. What's the best way to use the privilege to advance the anti-racist agenda? Teach your children to be non-racist that's excellent that's absolutely excellent people often think that not being racist at home or teaching your kids to be colorblind does the job i don't think so no. i think you, you need, need to put to your kids your chil- uncomfortable you need to you make, need your, to children make your children aware of yeah. color yeah i you think make so. your, the best the only way we're ever going to truly combat racism in the world is teaching is children when you have honest conversations with children because people are not born racist. They learn it. And if you teach them to not be and to truly see people equally, that's how you combat racism. And the reason why I say focus on children is because trying to turn your 80-year-old great-grandmother into not being racist isn't going to do anything for the world. No, it isn't. Um, We need to start with the the next generation. I love that. And if that's the message of this podcast as a mother, and you know, because you've seen my children grow up, you've seen Dakota, you know, you've seen Dakota since she was a baby, you've carried her. And yeah, yes, Dylan, my kids, Savannah, and, yeah, yeah, Dakota, and Dakota, was Dakota was a baby. I think, 
Savannah was maybe three or four and mm-hmm. Dylan was like seven or yep. eight or something. Exactly. Yeah, when when and, I first met them. You know, as much as I always had black friends around me and like this is never something that's made my children wonder I did have to talk to them about the racism in the world and around us so even if you don't feel like you're raising your children in a racist home even though you know you carried Dakota from a young age and she was accustomed to the color of your skin and never thought anything of it I had to make her aware that some people didn't like you because of the color of your skin and I think Mm -hmm. you know that's an uncomfortable conversation you need to have with your children um, because not only do they need to be aware of what you know they feel in their heart but also what other people are doing about it or against it it's so I love your answer somebody else asked you I'm going to answer it really quickly Kitty Rosette asked you and I want to know about that too how do you feel about the use of the n-word by artists or when fans of all colors sing it back I think that that is a weighted question, but I'll try and answer it really quickly. I think it's important um, because it is, you know, I listen to, I mean, I listen to rap music all day long. My kids love it. And the word is in there and kind of like, right. I don't know. I don't know. I need you to answer it. I will say this, that in my household, obviously, because we are an interracial couple, um, initially in my household, the we would say the N-word. And I had to have a very open conversation with my husband that I don't believe in, I don't believe in shielding things. Like this is my spouse, the one person that I should be able to say and do anything around and vice versa. So I, we, in my household, we do not censor that word Mm -hmm. um, because I think censoring that word gives more importance to it. Mm-hmm. I think that if you don't want people to use it, you shouldn't put it in your music. Um, because I think that if you're listening to a song and you're learning the lyrics to it, if it's one of the words in the lyrics, then maybe controversial to say this, but I've had this conversation with her. On one hand, it makes me uncomfortable. On the other hand, I'm like, well, it's a word in the, it's a word in the lyrics. If they don't want you to say it, they shouldn't put it in the lyrics. My favorite so, song has it, by the way, uh, you're going to hear it when you hear the podcast. You know, the intro song is a Jay-Z song and it has it in the right. title. And yeah, like, so I'm, I'm it's a my favorite song, so I don't know. I don't think it's, I think that it's a, per, I think that you need to have a, I, I think publicly you should probably never use it. But if you have an intimate relationship with a, a black person, that allows you to use the word, then that's your business. My husband doesn't, my husband doesn't use the word, but I use the word. If, if I have to actually say the word, like I don't say N word, I say, I say it. I never said N word. I either going to say it because it's in the lyric or, you know, like I would say it to you as a joke, I guess, because you know me, you know, I'm not racist. Right. Well, but that's probably only because, the di- if if you have it like I said earlier, if you have a dynamic with a black person that allows you to use it, fine. But I think out of the sensitivity for other people, absolutely, you should never say it outside of the dynamic of that relationship or in the privacy of your home. Like if you're at home listening to the song and you want to say the lyrics with their yeah. true integrity, then do it. But I think that you should have the sensitivity in public to not use it ever because there. If there is one black person that is offended by them, 
by that word, you should be considerate of their feelings because after all, like we said, the it's whole inflammatory. Is black lives black yeah. lives matter. And people need to understand that. Black Lives Matter doesn't mean we're just talking about bl- police brutality. Black we're Lives saying, Matter too. <laughs> we're saying we want to be considered in the same manner as everyone else. And that, like, using that word is a part of Black Lives Matter. I agree. It's saying, yeah, you might be able to say it with your friend, just don't say it in public. To ever. Period. You know? And then, but I do also agree that if we ever really want to get rid of the the word we've got to stop using it period so you think that the rappers should stop they should stop using it right but the philosophy behind the usage of the word in the black community is that we've taken a word that was used to brutalize and terrorize us and made it our own and taken ownership of it it comes from slavery am i right right Yeah. yeah that has been that has been the um, philosophy behind it. It doesn't work for many people currently like in the in contemporary um, America. Most Black people don't accept that as the reasoning and want it just gone completely. So until it can be eliminated completely from our vernacular mm-hmm. and everyday usage, then, like I said, don't use it. It's up to your it's up to the black people that you have intimately in your life to determine whether you're able to use that word in private settings. But I think that it's completely inappropriate to ever use the word publicly. There you have it. Boom. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I love to end on this note and on this question, my friend Melissa, who's a beautiful black woman who lives in Canada, she's a close friend of mine. She sent this question um, on the on the on the form when I asked everyone to ask a question, and I love that. Have you considered starting your own fashion line and business? You'd be amazing, and I agree with her. So, I think we should end on that note. Um, I have had the fortune earlier in life to have a taste of starting my own collection. I've had investors twice Mm -hmm. and each time some significant, something significantly happened that caused the investors to pull out. So the first time was the crash of 08. Um, I had a major investment. I was in the beginning stages of launching my brand and that happened, but fortunately for me, I also got offered the ports position the week after um, my investors pulled out. The second time was an investor in China, and I had another major investment, but um, they didn't want me to live with the from the investment. They wanted okay. me to continue working working at ports and do my own collection, which is un- impossible. Can't be, you know, the head of such a large company you know at ports i was the head of design of a company with 500 stores and half a billion dollars in sales so you can't launch a brand it's hard i know it 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 really requires investors and you know a a day at work and then launch your brand so unfortunately that that didn't work out ultimately my goal 
is definitely to have my own collection, especially because I am not a trendy designer. I have a very specific way that I'd like to see women dressing. I love very ladylike feminine clothing that reminds you of you know the days when Christian Dior and Hubert de Givenchy were actually working in their their ateliers and I would love to bring that kind of dressing back to the average woman you know at an accessible price point in the I'll be your contem- first average woman <laughs> if you ever in the, do I'll you be know, the in first the one. <laughs> in the advanced contemporary space so my goal is definitely there um, I would say to Melissa to definitely keep her ears open and her eyes open because something may be happening sooner rather than later. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to promote the shit out of it when it happens. Everyone's <laughs> going to hear it. <laughs> but prior to that, I am um, a very minority stake holder in a beautiful shoe collection called yes. Mavet. And um, we're going to put in the show Ingrid notes. Will share, Ingrid yes. will share um, the details, but Mavet is a really gorgeous advanced contemporary price point footwear brand. And we've got a proprietary pending patent comfort technology. And from my understanding, the testing with our um, marketing groups and um, all of the, the women that have bought the shoes so far, these will be the most comfortable high heel shoes you've ever worn. You can keep them on all day and not worry about blisters or calluses. And they're also gorgeous. We've got a really great, you know, my background isn't in footwear design. So I am just, I advise on um, design and development, but we've got an amazing designer, Alessandro um, Vassini, who has almost about 15 to 20 years of footwear design experience. Mm -hmm. And he and Cassandra Fossum, the CEO of um, the company, together have created the most beautiful, beautiful collection of perennial shoes. I looked it up already. I looked it up and I'm going to share um, it. And I think that, that, you know, you would love them, Ingrid. And I think that your listeners would love share blindly Black-owned business. I haven't done that. I've shared, you know, Black-owned fashion designs that I've worn before, like Jade Swim that I love. And, you know, I didn't want to just do it, like, you know, without heart or without truth but I did look at Mavet and I will share it um and I am excited to see what else is in store for you um this tell me and I'm glad that I'm glad that you said that because um, I think a great note to end on is something that you actually asked me earlier um I think it's important for people to know that there's no obligation to reach out to Black people or a Black person. It's your outreach and your advocacy should be organic. Everyone's method of advocacy is different and it's what you're capable of. If you have a Black friend that Mm -hmm. you genuinely have a relationship with, ask them how they're doing. Ask them what you can do. They will be a great resource for you. If you shop Black brands share them with people, but there's no obligation to 
it's like don't do things that aren't intrinsic to who you are or organic to who you are it's like it's okay to admit you know what i don't really know any black businesses i don't really have any black friends i'd love to learn more about their culture it's perfectly fine to say that because it's an unrealistic expectation to think that everyone knows what black lives matter is what the reasoning behind it what we're fighting for and it's okay to be and another thing is it's just it's, not okay to be woefully silence is violence the other thing is like not to use it for clout because i've i've seen that also and silence and is violence know, it, it's something that's angered me so much as the real friend of black people and having stayed close and stay close and you know watch their lives and stay in touch and all of that it's made me angry to see some people just use it for class i was saying yeah. i i hated um, watching that i hated yeah. watching people using this situation for clout yeah so i think that that can be the most offensive thing i mean whether it's people or even companies yeah. that are using it as an opportunity to show support for the black community, but have no real action and results behind it. For instance, you've got companies like Reformation um, that are publicly putting out these performative um, support messages, but then we later discover the mistreatment of their black employees. It wasn't you for you. You said that you've met Yael Aflalo when she was behind Yaya and she yeah. was extremely Can you hear me? I can. Okay. I was saying you you were you were saying she she was extremely dismissive and racist towards you when you met her when she was behind Yaya and she's now the person behind reformation. So we have found out that so many of their black employees have been so mistreated I mean, uh, you know, the reports are just awful. And then you confirmed and said, I met her when she was behind Yaya and it was pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, and since, well, it's when I met her when she was, she had the brand Yaya, there was a distance um, socially that was there. And I now recognize from reading the comments of, people that have worked at Reformation, I now am able to associate Identified. those experiences yeah. with yeah. the fact that she was most likely racist or prejudiced. Well, there you go. A lot of it is coming out. You have momentum. I'm so glad that this is happening. It's so sad that it had to happen the way that it has. But definitely after 12 years into our friendship, I'm so happy that I have a podcast where I could broadcast to a few women um, your voice and finally help you be heard. Um, Absolutely. And even and if, it's, if it's 50 of your listeners yeah. or 50,000, you know, if, if we can, if you touch one person or, yeah. you know, if there's one person in the fashion industry that this conversation changes, is, changes their hiring practices, it's worth it. Yeah, or even just one parent that will have a different narrative with their child. Exactly. And this is what I'm hoping for. My community is small, but it's strong and it's aware and it's, you know, reactive. And I'm hoping that, you know, 
I remember 12 years ago telling you, what can we do? And you were like, there's nothing you can do. This is America. Well, today I'm telling you, what can we do? And you have answers and there are people listening. So I guess we finally maybe are getting somewhere. Absolutely. I agree. I'm optimistic and hopeful always. Thank you so much for, you know, allowing our friendship to help me bring awareness and to teach me also. There are things I still don't know, even though, like you said, I've been an ally. I'm still learning and you helped us with that. And I'm glad that we could do it through our beautiful friendship. I love you very much. I'm very proud of you. I can't wait to see what else you come up with and I can't help to support you but now I know I won't be the only one supporting you absolutely and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my experiences with your listeners and also being able to have a taste of the conversations that we used to have in private the nostalgia has been so welcomed and so warm to me and I just want to say thank you and I love you. I love you too. We have to keep talking on the phone. Now I know that. So I hope you found this interview as eye-opening, heart-opening as I did. Um, I can't thank William enough for doing this. I ended this interview feeling so drained and feeling like until I publish it, I will not rest. I will not feel relieved. And so I can't wait to publish it. So now that you're listening to it, you know that I'm probably feeling a sense of relief. I felt a vulnerability hangover when this was over. And I'm sure William has as well. Um, I don't have it in my heart to talk to you about anything gangster chic brand or the method or anything else. So I am going to talk to you if you haven't followed up on my Instagram um, this past two weeks. I'm going to talk to you about how I tied my business with the cause Um, and how I tried to get my tribe involved and everyone turned up, so many turned up. Um, In the past week, I decided to do a promo on Gangster Chic Brand and gave a discount to my followers and to my audience and my customers. So there was a 15% off discount with the code uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter, BLM, and whoever entered the code on a purchase and benefited from a 15% discount, um, that from that sale, uh, some of the proceeds would go to um, Black Lives Matter Association. And I chose two specific ones, the NACP um, Association, So we donated to that association and we also donated to um, Black Visions Collective. And the reason why I chose these two organizations specifically is because I feel like the change that needs to happen is on a reform level. 
a justice um, reform level. It is obvious that because of my experience in federal prison, I have witnessed racial disparity um, in the U.S. criminal justice system, especially for African-Americans. Um, they're more likely to be arrested than white people, than white Americans. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to experience lengthy prison sentences. African-American adults are 5.9 times as likely to be incarcerated than whites for the same crimes. And as of 2001, one of every three black boys born in that year could expect to go in prison to prison in their lifetime. The reason for this is more systematic than explicit racial discrimination in the, ju the justice system. Um, and I have seen it behind bars. These women who were African-American, black women, who dried my tears when I arrived in prison, who themselves were saying something that was outrageous to me. And you heard me saying during my interview with William, saying that I don't belong there. And I've left them behind. I've left them behind to sentences that were probably way more than what they deserved. Very often the time doesn't fit the crime and the crime doesn't fit the time. Um, you know, the USA in effect operates two very distinct criminal justice system, one for the wealthy people and another one for the poor people and the people of color. And while the wealthy can access a very vigorous adversary system replete with constitutional protections for defendant. The people of color uh, within the criminal justice system often don't due to a number of factors. Um, each of these factors contribute to them going to jail from the minute they go through pretrial and you know, where I had the privilege of fighting my case and be exonerated. Yeah, sure. I also was a victim of that system. I was railroaded. Sure, I was exonerated after doing one year in jail that I didn't deserve to do, but I got to fight it. And instead of doing the four years I was given, I only did one. I know it seems crazy that today I say I only did one, but that's in comparison to these black mothers that were in jail with me and that very often were, you know, given not even a chance to go to trial, not even a chance to hire their own attorney. So had one appointed for them and a public defender, defender is um, going to often tell them because you're black a jury will be more likely to find you guilty because you're black your pretrial report will already um will already tell the judge that you are more likely to commit another crime and less likely to rehabilitate into society and so when these black women are arrested 
sometimes just for witnessing a crime and deciding to not speak up out of fear for their children, out of fear for their brother, out of fear for someone they care about. They go in for conspiracy. In America, conspiracy very often is a nine-year minimum sentence. And they go in for conspiracy. They very often are told they need to plead to get a lesser sentence. And once you plead, you don't even have the chance or the possibility to appeal. The only chance you have is a reform while you're waiting behind bars to do a sentence that's so lengthy and often so unfair and most of the time due to the color of your skin, which is black. And these reforms don't come along very often. And so I think they need to. And this is why um, the initiative that I took with doing that sale, um, hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter, was mainly because I wanted to invest my donations, our donations, my buyer's donations um, in seeing to those reforms. And so these two um, associations that we donated to um, and that I very thoroughly researched to donate to are the ones that are very promising to afford such reforms eventually. And I am thinking that, you know, it's little podcasts like mine and big voices like Williams that can make a difference. Um, So I donated to the NAACP, um, And their job, I'm going to give you the description just to give you an idea, is to defend, educate, and empower. It was launched at a time when the nation's aspiration for equality and due process of law were stifled by widespread state-sponsored racial inequality. Um, And so that is what they concentrate on. And during this time, the fight to defend civil and human rights has never been more critical. So by donating to them, um, you help win landmark legal battles, protect voters across the nation, advance the cause of racial justice, equality, and inclusive society. So I thought that was wonderful to donate. And that, that one was for the Black Vision Collective. And then I donated to also, on behalf of my buyers, and of course myself, uh, I also donated to the NAACP, which is the forefront of the movement to build political power and ensure the well-being of communities of color, underscoring the advocacy of their 2,200 local units across the country to empower black communities to make democracy work for them. So the donation to NACCP helps further the mission to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights for all persons and to eliminate racial hatred and racial discrimination. I'm going to put information on that on the show notes. But again, donating to any type of Black Lives Matter 
organization and movements has to be your choice. You need to do it from your heart and do your research. Because of my experience in prison and having experienced at sitting in the front seat the inequality and the injustices towards black people in the justice system and in honor of these black women who were nothing but kind to me of course there was they were motherfucking bitches also but there were hispanic ones that were motherfucking bitches there was some white ones there was all types of you know races and and I want to say um, cultures behind bars that were crazy. You're in jail. You're going to meet crazy people. But across the board, you, I could not identify them to one race. If anything, the black community behind bars, the majority of the black community behind bars, sure, they're different. Sure, they were different for me. Sure, they were a different, you know, socioeconomic, from a different socioeconomic background or culture or level of education for the most part. Yes, it's true. But the heart, the hearts were genuine. The hearts were good. And a lot of these mothers were aching for their children that they had been unlawfully taken away from. Because at the end of the day, it's unlawful to take someone away for a lesser crime and greater time. So the reason why I chose these two organizations, the NAACP and the Black Visions Collective, was because this is something that I've witnessed and that is close to my heart and that I know, to me, the root of the problem. It's deep-rooted in the system and it needs to change through reforms um but like i said don't stop at donating you also need to speak up it's too easy to just you know part with a few of your dollars or your euros or your pounds it's too easy there's so much more you need to do and i loved 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 that william said the best thing we can do with our white privilege to advance this and beat this racism and discrimination is to teach our children. And it, it's beautiful that he said that. And I think he's right. I think we, with our children, we are building the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. The best thing we can do is teach our children. And, you know, my children are going to be lawyers. And I hope that because of the way that I've taught them and spoke to them and put them in uncomfortable situations, speaking about things that they didn't necessarily feel towards Black people, but making them realize how much racism there is out there and how it's unacceptable and how unfair... And showing them, you know, George Floyd's daughter at her father's wake. Maybe these lawyers of mine, these future lawyers of mine, will be the next incredible advocates for empowering those black communities and make democracy work for them. Who knows? Maybe your children are. 
So on this note, I hope you found this podcast um, to be a wealth of knowledge and I hope you have found more love in your heart than hate. Um, don't be silent. Don't hesitate to reach out to William. Unless you're going to be nasty, then I'm going to come for you. And you know I will. <laughs> um, joke aside, I'm not really joking though. Um, yeah, I guess that's all for today. And um, we will keep on talking about that. I'm going to bring William back when we hung up I sent him a message and I said oh shit there was so much more I needed to ask you and tell you and communicate with you so we're gonna bring him back and next time we'll talk about his healthy habits he's a gym rat he um is an incredible cook so yeah I want to bring him back for the good stuff um and to speak about this some more so you know, this is not the end of the conversation. This is only the beginning. And together, we can definitely, most definitely, remind the world that Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter too, and they do forever. And that's fucking chic. Bisous, bisous from Monaco.